Chapter 10, Part 2, from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. We're continuing in the Gospel of John, currently in Chapter 10, and we're looking at a pretty dramatic scene. So if you've been kind of walking through this with us, I want you to recollect um, the past two sermons. Uh, chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. This is all related. It's all one scene. Okay, so you can't have any of that without the other. It's all one scene. And the drama of this scene derived from Jesus healing a blind man. Okay? The drama of this scene, the tension of this scene comes from Jesus healing a blind man. And so when we read this text, we have to take into account what's happening, what's going on. They're arguing with each other, right? They're fighting with each other. So what's happening as we read it is, it's just really, really tense, like an argument. Have you ever gotten into an argument with someone because you just couldn't understand what they were saying, right? Um, my wife is pretty soft-spoken, and so, you know, with all the noise of our house, we have a young child and with the TV going and the toys are playing because the toys are all talking. They're always talking and they're banging and clanging and she's yelling and she's running and all that stuff is happening. You know, my wife's like, hey, I have something to say to you. I'm like, sure. And she's like, well, this is really important to me. And like, it's been on my mind for a really long time. So I hope that you can like really hear me out. And like, I, I really want your feedback. And I'm like, what? I can't hear you. Can you say that again? So yes, yeah, like this has been something on my mind for like a really long time, and you know, um, I, it's been really meaning to speak to you about this. So I hope that I'm like I can't, I can't hear you, babe. I, I really, I, I need you to speak. Like, can can you say that again? It's like I really just feel like you're not listening to me right now. Like, what are you, what are you, what are we doing right now? Like, can you just come in here and say what? Can you say it? And then she's like, forget it. I'm not talking to you. And we get into an argument. Right? Because, oh, I just couldn't hear you. What, what's up? Right? And yes, I think for me, my posture could have been better. I could have walked over. And I could have been like, could, could you please speak that into my ear directly? Right? But there's this idea of being clear and understood. And Jesus is being loud and clear in this scene. Right? He's not just telling them about who he is. He's showing them who he is, right, per the healing of this man. And so the context of what's happening in this scene right now is that the weight of what's being talked about is really heavy, right? It's a very politically charged scene because of the Roman occupation and oppression, and they're looking for a Messiah. So let's use our sanctified imagination as we read this. The air is tense, tempers are flaring, blood is boiling, people are seeing red. All eyes are on Jesus. But do they see him? All ears are pricked for what he has to say, but do they hear him? And so as we look through this text, we're going to look at two ways the heart can be hard of hearing. And when I say hearing the voice of God, um, it can be um, an audible voice, 
For me, that's been a rare occurrence. It has happened in audible voice. Maybe that's happened for some of you more often than not. Who knows? Right? That can happen. But it's also feeling the voice of God, God's presence and guidance in your heart, receiving or knowing something from the Lord or hearing God's voice through Scripture. When we read Scripture, just hearing God's voice speaking to us or God's voice through people in your lives. If you're married, that's your spouse. If you have a close friend, that's that person. But someone who speaks into your life and through it, that God's voice can be through that too. So when I talk about hearing God's voice, we're going to be talking about those things, okay? But first, let's dedicate this time to the Lord. Uh, could you bow with me? Let's just pray. I don't know what you walked into this room with, let's try to leave it behind, yeah? And let's just um, come before the Lord. Father, we invite you into this place. We invite your spirit into this place, Lord. Would you flood it like a rushing wind? That those who are far away, God, that they would be brought close once again. That those who don't really quite know you, Lord God, that they would come face to face with the living God. And that, Lord, all of this would be for your glory. Would all things said be honoring to you. Maybe they, they, they be your words, God. And that, Lord, you would be pleased. Speak. Speak to your people, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that they would have, they would have hearts, spirits to receive. Because if we truly proclaim that you are the best thing, Lord, let our lives reflect it. We lift this up to you. All glory, all honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm reading from John 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for the blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, it is, not written, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be set aside, 
What about the one whom the Father set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of the blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed the sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. Let me give you some context that we have here for this scene. It says the festival of dedication. The festival of dedication is what we know as Hanukkah. Hanukkah, right? And what Hanukkah celebrates, if you didn't know this, is something called the Maccabean Revolt. Essentially what that was is Greek and Syrian troops, they invaded and they took over the temple. They took the temple and they desecrated it. They started worshiping their gods. They were offering sacrifices to their gods. And so this guy named Mattathias and his son, uh, Judas uh, Maccabeus, they were like, no, no, we're not having that. So they go, they get some men, they go, and then they kick the Greek and Syrian forces out and they claim the temple back, right? And there's this beautiful, miraculous scene where they have like, or one day's worth of oil to burn this candle, right? And so they use it to burn the candle, and that candle burns for eight days, long enough for them to rededicate the temple back to the Lord. And that's why we have a menorah, and you light all the candles, and that's what they celebrate. Anyway, what we're reading here in our text, our scripture, is actually only a couple years out from that event, okay? So that event, that revolt, that... Uh, desecration, that reclamation of the temple, that just kind of happened. It's fresh. People remember it. And so we have to understand that there's this anticipation in the air. It's Hanukkah time, right? So people, you know, their, their thoughts are thinking about that. They're, we're in the temple. Thoughts about how the temple should be sacred and rededicated back to the Lord, those, those are on our mind as a people, as a culture, and so as that's occurring, anticipation for a coming Messiah, a coming leader, a coming hero to free them from Roman occupation and oppression, that's also at an all-time high, right? We need a hero. That's why we have verse 24. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus turns around. I told you already. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Jesus is talking about the many works, right? We're only 10 chapters in for John. The many works, the many miracles that he's done, displaying God's power, his grace, his mercy upon the people, right? He's like, you've seen so much, but we're just going to look at the most recent one, the blind man from chapter 9, Okay? He's using this instance as evidence for his claim to being the son of God, right? And we just need to remember three things. Let's just remember three things about this scene. One is that man was born blind. The man he healed was born blind. And what that meant was the assumption is that generational sin in his family caused his blindness. He was blind from birth because of sin. 
The second thing we need to remember is that the blind man was unable to be part of community. What's that mean? It's that he was shunned from community. He was blind. He was a sinner. They didn't want nothing to do with him. The Pharisees didn't um, associate themselves with people like that for fear that they would, that sin would somehow attach to them. So that man could not be part of community. The third thing we need to remember is he was healed. He was healed. He can see. And this is really interesting because I want you to track with me. He's healed. The Pharisees are like, we need to investigate this situation. So they interrogate him, right? And they're questioning him. And the logic is very sound here, okay? He's blind from birth. Sin is what's causing his blindness. He can now see. He's not blind anymore. Therefore, what was causing his blindness was removed. You track with me? Only God can remove sin. Therefore, this man must have some sort, sort of connection with God. And that's what the blind man or unblind man was telling the Pharisees. He's like, I don't know him. But listen, this is what I know. And I can see, you know. And so what's so interesting about this is the Pharisees here, they don't like what, he's, what they're saying to him, but, uh, what he's saying to them. Because he's alluding to the godliness of Jesus there. If you look at chapter 9, verse 34, he's, they, they reply like this. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They kicked him out again. Rather than rejoicing and embracing this guy back in who's free from his sin and uh, but he could come back into community, rather than embracing him back into community, rather than bringing him back in and celebrating this healing, they kick him out. Jesus is responding. I keep telling you plainly. I've already explained it. I've already displayed it. You won't listen. Because you are not my sheep. And this is the first way our hearts can be hard of hearing. We can't let go of our pride and our shame. We can't let go of our pride and our shame. Pastor Sunita spoke on spiritual blindness a few weeks ago. And she brought up that our arrogance can cause us to stay spiritually blind. Pride, arrogance, our fragile egos, and shame are actually really good friends. They push each other along in a, revol in a revolving cycle. Uh, MD psychiatrists, they, they say that um, shame compounds upon itself. It feeds itself in a cycle. See, the Pharisees, they always sat at the high seat of the table. The religious elite, they enjoyed those places. In their holiness, people sought them out because they were so well-learned in the law and they were able to quote scripture and wisdom and teach upon these high things that people admired. And they had powerful positions at the temple and they took great pleasure in being the word, in the, in the ones who were the keepers of the word of God. Think about this moment. You have a man who was blind from birth. Reputation was he was blind. Everyone knew he was blind from birth. You're a holy man. You are unable to heal him. You, are, you don't carry that power, that authority. 
And out of nowhere, some guy comes, he's healed. Out of nowhere, that happens. Their first reaction, rather than saying, wow, that must be the work of God, their reaction is, is a demon. It's a devil. Devil did it. It had to have been something dark. If I couldn't do it, no one else could have done it. Must have been. Their shame cannot release them from admitting that there's something else there. And it's so ironic that even though they were the keepers of the word of God, the word of God who became flesh is standing right before them, arguing with them, and they're trying to kill him. Their hearts were far from the heart of the law. There is a blind man who can now see. It must be the work of the devil is what they conclude. Doesn't that sound crazy? Defensive people, petty people, they usually need to constantly bolster an ego that's fragile. Because if you were to touch it, to critique it just a little bit, it would mean that something is wrong with me. that I am inherently bad. I am inherently no good. And so we hype ourselves up, we puff our chests, and we pretend. And a lot of us, this is our every day. This is our every moment. This is every second of our lives. Tangent, but related. I went to um, the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. It's about a thousand mile drive from uh, New Jersey to there, right? Give or take. Uh, about 800 miles on I-80. It's really boring. And after we finished the year, uh, this guy I knew, he lived in New York, a friend of mine. And he was like, yo, bro, like, let's drive back home. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Like, we'll bond, right? And like, so we packed up his sports car, like real nice and tight with all our stuff. And we went. And like there's things like no bonding. Like he's just, I'm passed out and he's driving and then he passes out and then he's driving, right? And that's how we're doing. And so at the time, um, we, were, we used to play a lot of techno to like stay awake, right? Techno music is like loud and it's playing. And that, that's what we were using to stay awake. So he's passed out. I'm driving. We're going through Ohio. Driving through Ohio sucks, right? No offense, Ohio. But driving through Ohio sucks. So I'm driving like, I'm driving 110 in a 60, Right? And it's a sports car, so it's like, it's like no problem. And we have a radar detector. So, like, I feel good. Like, like how am I going to caught, right? And so we're listening to techno, and the song's going like, do-do-do-do, right? And, like, we're, like, listening to Sandstorm, and I'm like, yeah, like, like vibe into this song, right? And all of a sudden, I look to my left, and I see a police car, and I blow by it. And I'm like, ah! Oh! So, you know, I slow down. And if you're going, I mean, if you drive at 110 miles an hour, you know you can't, like, like hit the, you have to slow down, slow down, right? So I'm slowing down. He pulls out, he lights me up, he pulls me over, right? And then cop like walks over, comes in my car, knocks on the window, license registration. He looks inside and he points at the radar. And he starts laughing. And he's like, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. But what happened was the music was going do 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 do, but the radar was going do 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 do, so I couldn't hear the radar. So the radar was working. It was going. I didn't hear it. 
Blue by. What am I talking about here? Let's bring it back. Some of us, we live with this kind of noise all the time. But you don't realize it's noise because you're so used to it. Harsh talk. Harsh self-talk. I want you to think about when you screw up, when you make a, like a mistake. Like you forgot your phone at home and you have to drive like 15 minutes back to go get it. What do you say to yourself? What do you call yourself? Overly critical judgment on yourself. How critical are you of yourself? Feeling inadequate, unsatisfied, frustrated constantly. And you know what happens to our bodies? Our bodies normalize these things so that we can cope. It's a coping mechanism our bodies do inherently. But shame, it doesn't just stay there internally. It starts leaking out. When you're, self, when you're super self-critical, you become critical of others. The most critical people you know, they are critiquing themselves first and then they're critiquing you. And then they become envious. And then some of us create masks for ourselves. Why? Because maybe this version of me is more acceptable, more presentable enough. This shell of mine is something that people will like looking at. It's far from authentic. It's far from who you are. But maybe it's better. And then you know what happens? That shame begins to create fear. Because now you have a mask on. Now, what if someone saw who was behind that mask? God forbid someone were to take a peek and they would see how ugly, how incompetent, how stupid we are. That's the cycle that we create. And you wonder why we can't hear the voice of God. You wonder. All that noise. And the voice of God tells us this, verse 27. I know my sheep. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I know my sheep. That is so, so profound. I know who you are. Not the mask. I know who you are. I know my sheep. They are my sheep. I have a claim on these people. I give them eternal life, whether they know it or not. I give this to them. This is my gift. This is my promise to them that they shall never perish, meaning sin and death in this world. They don't have a claim on the people that I have a claim on. And no one will snatch this out of my hand. This is also a promise here that no one is taking you away from me. That God the Father himself has taken these sheep and they've placed them in the hands of Jesus, which essentially means because Jesus and the Father are one, that we are in God's hands like this, right here. And no one takes them from him. See, what shame, and shame does is it puts you out here it isolates you, makes you feel like you're alone. But God says, no, you're right here. No one takes you away from me. No one 
can snatch you out of my hand. What a reassuring word that is. Amen? It's a lot of noise. We need to lay down our pride and our shame. And upon hearing this, they get ready to kill Jesus. But Jesus appeals to the works he performed again in verse 32. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And the next part is tricky because it gets confusing with the English language. Uh, verse 34, Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law. Have I said you are quote-unquote gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? We'll clarify. Jesus is using a psalm here, Psalm 82, to answer the accusations of blasphemy. And we can't really know what Jesus is trying to say unless we look at the psalm, right? So we're going to pull up the psalm. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the, quote, unquote, gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like Every other ruler, rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Okay, so in English, you have the word gods. That word in the original text is Elohim. Elohim, it can mean gods, right? But the essence of its meaning is essentially one or a group that hold authority and power. That is Elohim. One who holds authority or power. So that could be gods, that could be judges, that could be rulers, that could be kings, right? So if those with authority are Elohim, how much more so than the one God himself set apart and sent? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, You're, you judges, you rulers, you kings, you are called Elohim, fine, because you do have power, you have authority, but how much more so the Son of God, the one God sent? Okay, track with me here. Jesus goes, how is that blasphemy? Because I am operating in that power and that authority. It's on display for you to see. You've heard of the works. You've seen the works. You've met the blind man. You spoke to him. That authority there is working. That Elohim is present. You see it happening. So fine, if you don't believe my claim to be the Son of God, look at the works. Verse 37, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus is pointing to the evidence. And again, it's a very logical argument here. The removal of blindness is evidence that the authority and power of God is at work. Look at it. Who else can remove sin but God? That's what Jesus is saying here. If only the Father can do it, then I must have some connection with him. 
It's quite logical. And note here, Jesus also judges them with authority. Right? He uses Psalm 82. You defend the unjust. You show partiality to the wicked. You know nothing. You understand nothing. Jesus is calling the religious elite out here on their corruption. He's saying, you wicked people. And you know how they respond? They say, nope. And they try to kill him again. This is the second way our hearts can be hard of hearing, or just plain hard. It's disobedience. Disobedience. Disobedience is when we will not surrender ourselves to his lordship and design. Now, this is not a guilt trip. It can look like many things, you know. Many of us struggle with sin. It is sin. But it could be that God is calling you to something. I don't know what. Maybe an occupation. Maybe something different. Maybe he's just calling you to spend more time with your family. Convicting you of something. Giving you an inkling. Disobedience is, nope. I need to focus on. I need to do. This is my. Because essentially what there is is something that we call in idol. There is something in our lives that has more authority than the voice of God in our lives. There's something that we're chasing, something that we desire to have, something that we are pursuing. We put else on the back burner. See, some of you hear the voice of God and straight up just don't care. That's me too sometimes. I got into my, a fight with my wife this week. It, I mean, it sounds like I fight with her all the time. But um, we got into a fight this week. She called me frantically. I was at home. And I heard, I heard her voice. She was worried. And being the great husband that I am, I said, talk to me, babe. Tell me everything. And she was bringing up a serious situation, a very serious situation with her, her parents. You know, it, it, it was kind of scary, Right? And she's telling me, and she, but, you know, I'm like, I'm locked in, right? I'm ready. So I begin to ask questions. I'm poking. I'm investigating, scoping out the landscape, trying to understand what's happening here. So I have a clear, I need all the data so that I can come up with the best solution, right? So I'm like, yes, okay, what's, what, what's happening there? What, why didn't you say this? What did he say to that, right? And so I hear her getting annoyed at me, asking her a question. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, why is she getting annoyed? You know? And finally she goes, you're not helping. I'm hanging up. And I was like, fine, you go hang up. She hangs up. And I was like, the nerve of that woman. How dare she hang up on me? I was so, I was so heated. I, went, I was like, I need to go work out to, to get this all out. So I went to the gym. Where I'm at the gym, and I'm huffing and puffing, I'm grabbing stuff, and I'm like, she, she hung up on me. I'm trying to help her, and I'm building a case against her at this time, right? Building up a case. She gave me so much attitude, and she knows that, like, I'm just trying to help. She wasn't even listening to me. I was just being concerned, and, you know, what, what does she have to say? What's the thanks that I get for trying to be concerned? This situation is going to affect me, too. I'm her husband. We are one. Like, how come? How come she? And then, like, I was building this case up. It's building and building. And then finally, I felt something in my heart. Maybe it was a voice. Maybe I, felt, I just felt it in my heart, but it was just, 
man, bro, didn't she sound scared? And in that moment, I had a choice. I could be like, nah, and continue to feed my ego, build my case. Or I could lean into that voice. And praise the Lord, I leaned into that voice. My idol was my ego in this moment. I needed to get over myself. And I needed to uncover what was going on. She did sound scared. And when she heard me asking her questions and poking and prodding, when she, the lie that was being fed to her, the lie that the enemy was feeding her was, yo, your husband thinks you can't handle anything. Yo, your husband thinks you're dumb. Yo, your husband, like, he thinks you're, you're incapable. And I need to look at the lie that the enemy was feeding me, that my ego was feeding me. It was, yo, your wife doesn't respect you. She doesn't care about what you have to say. And I was like, no, this isn't true. This isn't right. I need to come out of that. A lot of times, like, when we hear the voice of the Lord speak over, it can, it, again, it could be through our spouse, it could be a close friend, whoever. There are things there that come up. And it's literally like, you can choose me or you can choose to obey. What are you trying to feed here? Because I can't tell you how many times I chose the other way and I just into her. And I thought it would feel so good. She's done it to me too. And I just see the destruction in the relationship in that moment. I'm like, wow. I can't believe I just did that. And our pride, what does it do? It drives us to just... Keep going. Can't apologize, right? That's disobedience. Sometimes the Lord just calls us. The Lord may be calling some of you to something. Again, doesn't have to be a job, doesn't have to be an occupation. It could just be maybe you need to take out your friend for a lunch. Pray for them. Maybe you need to affirm somebody. You know, nah, that's okay. That is disobedience. Let's continue. Verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that, Jesus, all that John said about this man was true. In that place, many believed in Jesus. One, I think it's really cool that John never performed a miracle. Right? But he was just so true to his calling in his life. It was random. But what several of the Gospels do, and that, that includes this one, is contrast one scene from another. Okay, And what I'm talking about is we're going from this really tense, bloodlusty scene. Jesus crosses the river. The river's not even that wide. He crosses the river and goes to a place near Bethany. That's where John was. 
and people just believe. It's like night and day, right? And like, it's just so ironic, right? This place that Jesus was, he was at the temple, this place that was supposedly rededicated back to the Lord, sacred to God. No belief there. It goes far out. They believe. And there's no reason pointed out in Scripture in particular. However, in all the cases we see this kind of contrast, it's because that there's an open heart. An open heart for the Lord. All this to say this. If you want to heed the voice of God, we have to lay down our idols. I'm going to use the word surrender our motives, surrender ourselves, maybe our plans, maybe even our dreams to God. And this is not like I'm surrendering it so I give it up, like I give up on my dreams. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you surrender to God because what you're doing is you're handing it over and you're putting it into the hands of one who is much more trustworthy than any of us are. That is what surrender is. So when I surrender my ego to the Lord, when I surrender my shame, my pride to the Lord, is God, you take this. Because I'm sick and tired of managing it on my own. You take it. You work with it. And when we surrender ourselves in that way, I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, it's not always painless. God moves. And his voice moves in our lives, through our lives. You know, I received my call to ministry a little over 10 years ago now. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I quit my job when I was 28. And I, remember, I just remember, like, before I quit my job, I was so happy. I was so happy because... You know, for me, I was doing well for myself. I made a lot of money. I was single. I was living with my best friend. And all I did was work in church. I worked like 80 hours a week. That was crazy. But like all my free time, like I, I went to church. I had fun at church. I served at church. Uh, my best friend and I served at a different church. Like we were, we were just, it was, I was living my life, right? It was great. And I remember um, one particular moment, uh, our youth, the youth group that we were helping at, not this one, uh, at a different church, was really disorganized. And so there was no retreat speaker. So he goes, Doug, why don't you be the retreat speaker? And I was like, okay. I went, and I spoke at the retreat, and it was terrible. Because speaking's not my gift, but it was, it was terrible. But one kid came to Christ. Then altar call, one kid came to Christ. And I was like, that's really cool that's really cool. And I remember thinking to myself, I could do this for the rest of my life. Schnitzel. Right? I, I, I was like, no, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I cannot do this for the rest of my life. Because I knew, I had just reconciled with my father, with my family. Right? It, it had been a couple of years since I had done that. It was very dramatic because everything in my life is dramatic for some reason. But I had just, and I knew that if I became a pastor, of some sort, or entered ministry in some way, it would rock the boat again. And I, I was like, no, I'm not doing this. But at the time, I was praying with Pastor Peter and Pastor Kevin. They affirmed my call. 
And it took me about a year to muster up the courage to tell this to my family and put it to action. I fought it for a year. I went, and like I had this plan. I was ready for this explosion. My, my, my father lives in Korea, so I told my mom first. She's like, don't do it. I told my sister a second. She's like, I don't really think you should do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey the voice of God in my life. And so my dad came. We sat down at a restaurant. I don't know why it has to be a restaurant, but we ate at a restaurant. And I was gonna, ready to tell him my stuff. And he goes, hey, I know what you want to do. You're too stupid and you're too naive to make this decision. Don't do it. And I was like, and I looked at my, my sister and my mom. One of them told, them told him it wasn't me. And I just remember feeling so betrayed, so hurt, so angry. Because I, I was ready for him to explode at me, you know, but I, at least I would tell him how I got there. How the Lord worked in my life to get to this place. I walked out of the restaurant. I was like, I can't do this right now. I, I paced around, went back in. I was like, hey, you want to hear me out? He's like, no, like, I don't want to hear you out. Don't do it. It's stupid. And we start, I started yelling. We started yelling at each other. We started fighting. And I remember he was like, you're doing this because of the past. And he was referring to, like, when I was growing up, the physical abuse, the verbal abuse. And I looked at him, I was like, no, I forgave you a long time ago. And he said, how dare you say you forgive me? He said, better sons were raised in harsher environments. And I remember, I'm like, it's on. It's on. So we were screaming. My, and then we drove home, get out of the car. And I just remember God being like, not this. This is not it. Not over this. And I swallowed my ego, my pride. I went up to him and I said, hey, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how I spoke to you. He said, good. I drove home, and that Monday I quit my job. And I enrolled into seminary. And I think it was the worst year of my life. Because so much of my identity was in who I was. I was a young urban professional. You know, I lived in Edgewater. <laughs> was doing well for myself. Had a career going. So much of my identity was that now I was, I was a student. I wasn't making money. I was in this dinky seminary. I didn't want to be there. My family didn't talk to me for that year. I felt so alone. It was so uncertain. I was always unsettled. I was like, I had a hyper budget. I lived in the living room of our apartment after that because I couldn't really afford rent. And you know what? I miss those days. Because day in and day out, all I was trying to do was obey God's word for my life. There wasn't all this noise, all these responsibilities, quote unquote, all these priorities, quote unquote. I was just trying to heed God's voice in my life. And I miss it. I do. Some of us here need to go back to that place. 
Some of, some of us here need to remember the goodness it is. The goodness of God, his promise over you. Catrice, uh, she preached in last week and she was quoting Zephaniah 3.17. And the Lord is a mighty warrior. He sings over you songs of delight. You're right here. And he's speaking over you. He's speaking his design, his purpose, his delight over you. Some of us need to go back to that place. Let's lay down our idols. Let's surrender our dreams, our motives, our plans to him. I promise he'll return them tenfold, a hundredfold. I always say, I don't ever want to do what I did ever again but I'm so glad I did it. I pray that we can go back to that place. We can hear the Lord and we'll say, yes, God, I'm with you 100% boy. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we dedicate this time to you right now. And I ask you, Father, that we just, that you would open up our ears, God. You would open up our hearts. Some of us haven't heard from you in a long time. This is not about regretting. This is not about feeling guilty. This is not about, there's no condemnation in the Lord in that way. This is just about coming into the light of Christ. And so let's, let's do a prayer exercise. Let's just go before the Lord, whatever that looks like. Go before the Lord. Stand before him. Remember, when you stand before God, I don't care if you sinned this morning. When you go before the Lord, you stand justified and righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ, because his blood covers you, because we have a priest who advocates on our behalf, who is advocating on our behalf to the Lord sitting at his right hand. So imagine that you stand before God, God Almighty. Don't look at his feet. Don't look at his hands. Look at his face. And say, Father, I'm here. Because I want to hear from you. And I want you to surrender whatever it might be. Father, here's my shame. Take it, Lord. Here's my pride. Here's my mask, God. Take it. Here are my dreams, God. My ideals. My desires. Take them. Redeem them. Heal them. And remember that you are placing them into the hands of the one who is called Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is master of this universe 
the one that we come to worship, but the one who takes his pride and his inheritance in you, his people. So there is a relationship there. As big and as mighty as God is, he is so close and so intimate. So can you give that up to him? Say, God, I'm done with this noise. I want to hear from you in your presence. I just want to hear from you. Nothing else, Lord. So God, I ask that your presence come powerfully upon your people, that they would feel you, feel your hand upon them, that you would speak your truth over them, and that they would know, Lord, how close they are to your heart. That, Lord, you can bring life into any situation, even relationships that look like death, even bodies that look like death, Lord God, you can bring life into. We believe that and we proclaim that in Jesus' name. So we lift these things up to you. We commit them to you. And we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.